podcast is provided for general information and for general information purposes only and does not replace your financial, tax, legal or finance product advice. Hello everyone and welcome to The Female Investor, your chance to listen to two of Australia's leading property experts talking about all things property buying, finance, strategy and lots more. Kate Hill and Nicola McDougall are the authors of the book The Female Investor, Creating Wealth, Security and Freedom Through Property. Kate is an award-winning property mentor and coach, a qualified property investment advisor and founder of buyer's agency, Advisable. And she's a successful property investor herself. Nicola is an award-winning and prolific property journalist. She has been involved in property research, analysis and reporting for 15 years. And she is also a successful property investor herself. Property investment is one of the simplest, safest and preferred ways for women to create financial freedom. And with the right information to make an educated and informed decision, this can be achieved. If you know a woman who is concerned about her financial future, or maybe that's you. If you're keen to improve your chances of creating an income for life, then this is your place to learn, be inspired and motivated. Along with some special guests, Kate and Nicola will be offering genuine practical news and tips to women of any age to stake your claim on the property market. So come on, ladies, stay tuned and let's do this together. Hello, all you lovely ladies out there. How are you all doing? I hope that you are all safe and well. I've got a couple more segments for you in our podcast this week. Nicola and I are having a discussion about a recent media article about falling super balances for women out there. So stay tuned for that. First up, I'm going to have a little strategy session with you about the number of investment properties you need. It's an ongoing discussion. You're going to read about it a lot in the paper. So stay tuned for me coming up right now. All right, let's get straight into it, ladies. How many investment properties do you actually need? This is a really, really common question that I get. I do get it all the time. Now, keep in mind that one of the main objectives that many investors have in accumulating property is to build up an ongoing income stream. It is what we call passive income. Now, this is different to getting a steady paycheck from your nine to five job, obviously. That's why we call it passive income. Doesn't mean there's no work involved, of course, but you would do most of the work up front, like buying the property, obviously, paying the loans down, that kind of thing. And you might put in some additional effort along the way to earn your income, like maintenance and repairs and all that sort of thing. Passive income, on the other hand, is money you earn that doesn't require you to do a lot of active work to continue making that income. Property investments can work really, really well in this regard. Now, to make it meaningful, you'll need to get an understanding of what net worth means and how to calculate a cash return on this net worth so that you can forecast the level of income that you could receive. Now, how do you calculate that net worth? Well, you can work it out by adding up the value of your income producing assets like your investment properties and then deducting the liabilities, which are usually all your borrowings or the debt that you still have on those. 
Now note that while you can use equity in your home to invest in, or perhaps downsize in the future, I don't generally make that part of a net worth calculation because your home is usually not producing an income, right? And you do actually need somewhere to live. Okay, so maybe you might want to go and get a pencil and paper and work alongside me with this. As a really rough guide, let's say that you have got $3 million worth of investment properties. I know that sounds like a lot right now. This could be one single $3 million property. It could be two $1.5 million properties. It could be five $600,000 properties. You get the idea, right? How that $3 million is made up can actually vary. And then let's say that you had $1 million worth of debt on that properties still outstanding, right? So you take your $3 million worth of value and you subtract your $1 million worth of debt. So your net worth would be $2 million, not high mathematics there. And then let's use a really conservative cash return on this net worth of, let's say, 5%. That is quite conservative. Now, this net worth, as long as you owned those properties and you've got net worth of $2 million, would provide a recurring annual gross income of approximately $100,000, which is basically your $2 million times 5% return. Now, this is probably taxable, depending on your circumstances. You still need to pay all your property expenses, but that is pretty good, right? So if you break that down, so let's say you paid $400,000 for the properties in different diverse areas. I can hear you all shrieking now. Where on earth am I going to buy a property for $400,000, Kate? I know it's hard. It's just an example at this point, right? It's We're just looking at the principle of this. Okay. So back to our $400,000 property. Over time, those properties will grow in value, right? Not all at the same time, of course, and you probably won't buy them all at the same time. You might pay more for some of the properties and less for some of the others, but we are keeping this calculation simple, for the purposes of this exercise. So bear with me. So let's say that you have got 15 year mark and you have those properties worth at that point, you've got those properties worth $600,000. So over the course of 15 years, each of your $400,000 properties has grown to $600,000 and you've got five of them. You have a debt remaining on each one of 200000 The properties have grown in value. That means that you then have a net worth of 400000 on each one. Multiply that by five, gives you that total net worth of $2 million. Now, as I say, you're going to have all sorts of configurations within that. But you, again, I hope you get the idea and you get the principle behind that. So that is a very simplified calculation. And what it really shows you, I hope, is that it doesn't actually depend on the number of properties that you own. It is the size of your net worth calculation that really matters, right? 
Our calculation shows that you do need a pretty significant net worth to get a six-figure passive income, maybe in retirement or, you know, at some stage. It does need time for those, for those properties to grow in value, right? But where the number of properties does matter, I think, is that risk profile. I do know, I keep going on about it, but it's really, really, really important. We can't all afford an expensive property that will grow to $3 million, right? Just that one property. We don't all have that kind of cash. Most of us are in that five properties at the $600,000 category, Now, remember, that doesn't mean you need to pay $600,000 for them right now. You just need them to be worth that when you want to start receiving an income. And ideally, you do want to be paying down that debt as well so that you've got value growth and debt reduction happening at the same time. And if you don't have debt reduction strategy in place at the moment for whatever reason, because you might be paying down your own home rather than paying down investment debt, then you do need to watch that capital growth happening so that you get it to a significant level over five properties or six or however many it is so that you get to that meaningful net worth. I would also argue that it is actually riskier to own just that one $3 million property than several smaller inexpensive ones, right? We're talking perhaps better area, diversification, a much broader tenant base in those lower price ranges, right? Getting a $3 million property to pay for itself is going to be really, really tricky. You've got fewer chances of vacancies with more inexpensive properties and less risk of not being able to pay the loan back if it is vacant for any period of time. So to invest at this level, we would recommend that usually you'd need a time frame of around 10 to 15 years just to give those properties time to grow. So don't panic, ladies out there. It's never too late. <laughs> and you need a financial roadmap in place to get you there. You will need a strategy that takes into account capital growth, cash flow. You need to be able to hold those properties over that period of time and ideally some debt reduction as well. You need to talk to your brokers about that. It's also important to remember that most of us don't simply build up a property portfolio of this size overnight. I promise you, no one does that, right? And whatever you might read, you know, zero to 5,000 properties in 10 minutes, it's the people don't do it. I promise you. It all takes patience. It takes skill, most of all motivation and time, right? And the motivation part is what I am here for. Okay, so end of lecture for today. Moving on to our next segment. Hello, lovely ladies out there. How is everyone doing this week? Nicola and I are back for yet another fabulous female investor podcast. Today, I have a topic for us, which is a recurring theme really in the media. And we, again, we talk about it in our book, The Female Investor, Creating Wealth, Security and Freedom Through Property, available at all good bookstores. Hard copies are available very soon. So do be sure to pre-order it. The recurring theme in the media being falling super balances for ladies. And let me set the scene here, really. So during the early days of the COVID pandemic, here in Australia, there was an opportunity for 
people in general, not just ladies, but for anyone to withdraw funds from their superannuation fund. And the superannuation fund in Australia is what I think a, a lot of Europeans would call their pension fund. So it's a retirement fund, essentially. And the scheme allowed people to take up to $20,000 in two separate withdrawals from their retirement fund, their super accounts between April and December 2020. And there was a quite a significant take up of this. Apparently, more than 3 million people withdrew a collective $37.8 billion through this program. That's quite, that's quite an amount of money. Now, for some people, having access to those funds may have actually made the difference between keeping a, a roof over their heads. They, they needed it for survival. But others, I think, decided to just really jump on a very rare opportunity <laughs> to, get, to get at money in their retirement funds, which would normally be locked away, obviously, until retirement. And at the time, the federal government probably wasn't too overly worried about the reasons why people were withdrawing cash from their super funds, because it no doubt sort of played a part in stimulating the economy during that pandemic. And the government obviously also had to be seen to be doing something and getting people access to cash. So... Nicola and I have been talking about this, but Nicola, welcome. Hello as well. Hello. 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 Having set that scene, but tell us a little bit about that more recent news article that really didn't make for very pleasant reading, did it? No, unfortunately <laughs> not. The news article was the fact that it appears that um, a number of women may have been coerced into withdrawing mm. uh, those funds from their super because of perhaps being in a domestic violence situation. You know, financial control is, is a key indicator, uh, can yeah. be a key indicator of um, domestic violence. Mm. I remember actually you know, not to get off that topic, Kate, but I remember when that policy came out and it was yeah. very early in the pandemic. And at the time, everything that, were, you know, all of the stats that were being, you know, shown to us was kind of like, okay, we're all going to die here. Yeah. And um, yeah. the government, uh, the federal government um, in Australia were, you know, throwing things out left, right and centre. And this policy was one. What do you think? I mean, I remember it coming out. At the time, you know, things were still up in the air financially. We None of us were going to happen. And my husband mentioned to me whether it was something that he thought I thought he should do, and I said no uh, because we didn't need to. Our situation was very fortunate that that yeah. was didn't need to do that he was a tradie that can, could he is a tradie that can continue mm. to work mm. however a lot of people didn't have that opportunity but also a lot yeah. of people just took it out like we took you said in the yeah. intro yeah. Yeah. they had the opportunity to do so and here in yeah. Australia you don't yeah. get to catch your pen, touch your pension funds mm. you know for 45 years pretty much yeah. so you know, for women, whether they were unfortunately, which is horrific, um, coerced into withdrawing mm. those funds or whether they were in the camp where they decided that they might get $20,000 out regardless, it's, you know, particularly concerning given the low super balances that women generally have anyway. And, and look, it's such a, oh gosh, it's such a complicated situation and such a complicated subject because you absolutely felt that money needed to be made available to people. It was such a an unusual, obviously, situation. None of us have gone through a pandemic before. 
I mean, everyone is playing catch up. The government's trying to help. They're trying to put together JobKeeper, but also JobKeeper, which I think was an incredible incentive for us here in Australia, did obviously have its flaws because it relied on people putting through tax returns being actually in the system, right? And not everybody is in the system, not everybody, you know, casual work, cash in hand work, those are realities of modern life. And so you had people who were working for a living, needed to have financial support, but weren't in the system, right? You know, couldn't apply for JobKeeper, couldn't apply for perhaps other benefits because they were like, well, who are you? We have no record of you. Where's your tax return? You know, you needed to prove your drop in income, et cetera, et cetera, to, to be eligible for some of this stuff. So I think it was it was quite possibly very well-meaning. You know, I don't want to get into political sort of discussions really, but um, we'd be here all day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, <laughs> but money needed to be, funds needed to be made available to people, right? So I think a negative or a downside of it is that it it the people who were taking that money out were also the people who shouldn't be taking it out, who were perhaps the most vulnerable, who were people who weren't in the system because they were getting cash in hand in terms of income and they were the last people you'd want to have to be taking money out of their super funds, right? And perhaps those are the people that should have been helped way more mm. than your, your more professionals who were, you know, again, I don't want to get into political, you know, <laughs> discussions here, but um, I, I, I feel that it, as is now being borne out with articles like this, that the the, the losers, if we can put it like that, long-term, short-term, yes, roof overhead was able to pay for bills, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But long-term, I think that'll have $20,000 is massive out of a low-income earner's super balance, you know, and in 15, 15, 20 years' time, that's that's a lot of, you know, accumulated growth in a super fund that isn't then going to be there for, mm, for, mm. for the most vulnerable people. So part of the review of that super withdrawal program is you mm. know, looking into the fact that there weren't the necessary checks and balances there mm-hmm. um, because yeah. it was quite ad hoc reactive yeah. as yeah. the policies yeah. are in times of crisis. Yeah. Um, and whether it's an economic policy or it's, uh, well, they're mostly economic policies, but they're just coming through in different forms, which might be uh, the pink the pink backs, bats thing from several decades ago and things like that. But part of the review is looking into the checks and balances that clearly yes. are not there That's to right. ensure yes. that yes. the people that were withdrawing mm. the funds from their super actually yeah. uh, were the people that wanted to withdraw their funds from their super yeah. and uh, not were not in any way. I don't know how. I think it was relatively simple to withdraw the funds mm. and there probably wasn't the checks and balances there to mm. uh, prove well, not to say that to prove identity, because surely there must have been. Yeah. But I think it was a relatively simple exercise to withdraw the funds because at the time the government wanted to uh, make sure there was enough funds in the economy to support yeah. it during the pandemic. Yes, that's right. And I think, you know, what we, uh, and to, I guess, bring us, you know, we weren't off topic really, but to bring us back to our, our female uh, side of things is that you know what we found and I think what both of us sort of found quite horrifying about the whole situation is that really you know women can't afford to lose money out of their superannuation or pension retirement funds however we we call this around the world and certainly not tens of thousands of dollars right because generally women as we all know have 
much, much lower super balances to, to start off with. You know, there's this real difference in super balances between men and women. It starts when workers are in their 20s and it never recovers, right? I remember you talking about that Australian government's, um, there was that paper, the Mm, mm. I've got a reference to it here, the the Australian government's Women's Economic Security in Retirement Insight paper 2020. Go and look it up, ladies. Seriously, it's very worth a read. Even when women are in their late 20s, the superannuation balances are lower than men's, right? And that's you're just starting out. So, you know, you then withdrawing tens of thousands of dollars from that fund, you are you're falling behind even more. Mm, That's mm. a scary thing, right? Exactly. And and the super balance demarcation uh, clearly continues to happen uh, throughout their working lives, Mm. generally uh, because they uh, a lot of women are employed in a part-time or casual capacity because of child rearing. And then even when they do perhaps want to return to the workforce, when their children are uh, older, they may not be able to get a more high-paying job or they may be, you know, continuing to work in a part-time or casual basis Mm. throughout most of their working lives. And as we know here in Australia, the super contributions are based on your total income uh, every year. So if you're earning... a fraction of what a man uh, is, well, then it you know, stands mm. to reason that your super balance right. is going to be a lot lower exactly. um, at retirement. Yes. And that can be a major problem for women regardless, but it is a major problem in retirement if they happen to be single mm. at that point mm. in their life as that's well. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And and I was I was just looking um, as you were talking, you know, so this this research that found that women, uh, as we as we said, are on the back foot financially from the beginning of their careers. And if they decide to have children, the gap just gets wider and wider. Um, and it just keeps, as you say, it just keeps growing throughout their lives. And by, here are the stats, right? By the time that women, or by the time a woman retires in Australia, according to this Insight paper, the average superannuation account balance is 17.4% lower than a man's. That's That's a lot. Um, it reflects the average super, the average superannuation balance or retirement fund balance of two hundred and seventy-seven thousand dollars for women and three hundred and thirty-six thousand dollars for men. So and I think what's interesting yeah. with those stats is yeah. that, that those stats are based on people that have you know recently retired, and we also just need to remember that the superannuation scheme mm. in Australia hasn't been around all of their working lives either. And certainly in the beginning, the percentages of the contributions into their funds were quite low. So what will be very interesting to to watch over the next decade or two Mm -hmm. is even like people out, you know, women our age, if we ever retire, but, you know, in 20 years' time, what are are those stats telling us when Mm. yourself and, you know, as someone Mm. who has had superannuation my whole working life, Mm. what is the difference going to be there? And Mm. I even think of my own situation as a self-employed person Person, you know, my super balance is probably not as good as it should be because I'm yeah. self-employed and yes. there's always yeah. Yeah. I own my own business. There's always other things that money needs that money. And so I'm I need to do better myself. Mm. I mean, my husband's a tradie and his super balance has yeah. rocketed up so much in the last five years yes. because he's he gets, you know, that quite a what is it, up nine and a half percent contribution from mm. his employer. Mm. So even myself, you know, I need I need to I need to do better. Mm. I need to do better about this too, right? And it's every year it's on my list and it's and I just never get to it. 
In your defence, though, uh, you have been a very active property investor too. Well, this is true. Right? So I think there is, from a, just a holistic strategy point of view, mm. um, you know, it's not like you've been sitting there doing nothing. You have got your investment Good. properties, right? So give yourself a bit of a break. <laughs> Thank you. Head. Thanks, Auntie Kate. <laughs> <laughs> bit of a pat on the head and go, hey, you know, you've made genuinely awesome inroads and and I am slightly ahead of you in age. And also I followed, you know, quite, you're really just following in my footsteps, right? Because I didn't put a lot into super just from a, I guess, okay, personal story coming up. So yeah, as I'm sure everyone can hear, I'm not from Australia, you know, I'm in, I'm actually German by birth, but spent, um, that's a whole other podcast, um, but spent a lot of time in England. I came here 15 years ago to Australia and did not, have I was a student forever you know postgrad did was at uni forever so didn't actually start my working life until quite late I was 30 honestly everyone right so my my retirement fund money in England is not is not it's not that big so really I didn't start honestly until about 15 years ago and I am now 53 so I've got 15 years worth of super payments. And again, you know, when you're starting out somewhere, you're just getting hang of things, you're especially when you emigrate to a whole other continent, right? You've got other priorities. So then the property investing, that was the, really the first thing I got into. Now, John, husband, also self-employed, and we did not put a lot of his money into a super fund either because we needed the income to, to pay for life, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, Like you say, running his own business. So but we did then start the property investing and I was 42, 43 at the time, which is from my, all the research has a bang on average when everybody starts to do this, early 40s. Mm. Needs to be earlier. Just putting that out there now, ladies. It needs to be earlier. You are way ahead of the game, young lady. <laughs> right? So I'm not 33 now. But- no, no, that's right. <laughs> but I, you know, so the investment properties, you know, and accumulating those, that became the focus. And then also paying for them, you know, Mm -hmm. waiting for the dust to settle, figuring out what your cash flow is, that income, your outgoings. You know, we we started in Sydney, we moved to Adelaide, now we're back in Sydney, then I start my own business, you know. So all of that is, it sort of gives you reasons. And it's really only been, uh, honestly, maybe four or five years that I have been Filling my super account mm, to the max okay. of what I'm allowed to do, right? Because the focus has been elsewhere. I'm I'm still at only 53. I've still got, you know, like you say, if we ever retire. <laughs> but the investment properties were the focus. Now I'm putting money into super, mm. right? And now it's it's just as your strategy changes, but you you have to be doing something. Yes, good point. That's a very good point because I'm always kind of like, why can't I, you know, put X, Y, Z into the super? And that's because I have all of these, I have properties. Yeah. Mm, mm. And and I'm still in the accumulation phase as well. You know, obviously I've got the splitter block here, which we're going to develop, but Mm. then probably got at least I've got another one or two that I want to do in the next 12 12 months. Mm. And that's it though, I think for me. But yeah, that that makes, thank you. That makes more sense because I kind of sometimes, (laughs) you know, get annoyed with myself that I I, I, I somehow I'm not, you know, Finding the funds to to funnel into into mm. the when I'm actually reusing them elsewhere. 
And I would say, um, personal online live strategy session here, everyone, mm-hmm. um, impromptu, we hasten to add, none of this was planned, <laughs> but keep keep a little bit of that annoyance in your head, right? Because to me, that's also the motivator. You know, I was I was reading um, a book the other day, Jim Rohn, who I, I'm sorry, he's a man, but I, I really, I love all we of love the writing. I know he, I just, I find him really quite motivational. He makes sense to me. He's he's written some really awesome strategy and financial help sort of books. But one of the key things for him is discipline. You know, you need to be disciplined. You need to have goals. You need to, oh, this is all boring stuff, but it's it's true. So the more you have that little voice in your head going, I need to put more money into super and I've got to buy those properties. You, you need that voice in your head. If you don't have it there, you're going to end up like, unfortunately, some of these stories that we read about in the paper. Mm, keep, mm. keep a little bit of that irritation and annoyance with yourself there. Give yourself a pat on the head too because you've got mm. those properties, but don't lose the momentum of what drives you to make this podcast with me, right? Well, exactly. That's why we're doing it, right? So keep that. Don't lose it. It, no, I won't. Gives, it gives it, you and it's funny because even like on the, in the similar vein, as you know, you know, bought a property six months ago, tried to buy another one a few, you know, the year before mm. that, and for a mm. bunch of reasons, which we will one one day explore, that didn't work. I, I got my quite large, mm. uh, uh, sizable deposit back. Literally two days after I got my deposit back, mm. I was at open homes. I know you were. <laughs> even though my friends and family completely know who I am. <laughs> Um, they were like, really? And I'm yeah. like, yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I know. You were sending me links to properties and I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> incredible. I know, right? Well, but but look, you know, but this is why this is why we are so passionate about all our listeners, about all ladies taking charge of their financial futures and their independence so that they have more choices later in life. We honestly can't stress this enough. This is why we're here. This is why we're talking to you. Neither of us are perfect. You can hear that. We've all made, we've made mistakes, but we really want, uh, I guess, our passion and our motivation to come across to everyone that you, that you all do this, right? And one of the simplest ways, if we can put it that way, it's not easy. It's not that simple, but it is very doable, is to invest in property, right? Um, you can do that when you're young. Uh, you can do it in your 40s. You can do it in your 50s. You might find yourself separated, divorced, still single, whatever, right? But owning the investment properties will make a huge difference to your financial outcomes and, and perhaps not even having to rely on super, right? But having that as well is key to me. Exactly. So I think on that note... <laughs> The uh, personal stories, impromptu strategy sessions. (laughs) We will leave it there for this week and we will keep coming back to our topic, keep talking to you about what motivates us, what can hopefully motivate you. We'd love to hear some of your stories. Ladies, please do keep emailing us uh, if you've got any questions. And um, Nicola and I will sign off with this segment for now. So bye for now. Bye for now, everyone. And that's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it and found it super useful. You can email us with any questions that you have on info at thefemaleinvestor.com.au. Don't forget to order a copy of the book, The Female Investor. 
you can go to your local bookstore, pick it up on Amazon or Booktopia or anywhere that good books are sold. And you can head to thefemaleinvestor.com.au where you can click on the links and also find lots of resources on property investing, news, hints, tips and videos. We will be with you all again soon. Stay safe and well, everyone. Bye for now. Bye.